0: investor doing things on your own? How about someone working with a firm that isn't so responsive or in sync with your investment philosophy? My podcast talks you through all things financial. Look, there's stuff you don't deal with very often, but investments, insurance, and retirement is something we plan for each and every day. This is the Pennywise Financial Podcast, and welcome to the show. Welcome to Pennywise Financial Podcast. This is Constantine here at Monarch Wealth Management with my co-host, Sam Gwelly. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today is June twenty second. This is Wednesday. The sun is shining, although we do have some looming weather in the forecast today. Um, and let's jump right into the markets, Sam. What's what's shaking right now in the S and P Dow and the major indices?
1: Yeah, well, there's really no surprise. We're still negative everywhere. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> it.
0: I almost spit out my coffee there. <laughs> coffee this afternoon. Oh,
1: boy. Yeah. Uh, Dow Jones, over the past week, it's pretty much flat, only down a tenth of a percent. Over the past month, down about 5%. But <clears throat> year-to-date, still down over 15%. percent uh, s and is basically the same thing, pretty much flat over the past week, month down about 5%. And year-to-date, we're still down over 20%. Hmm. And then the NASDAQ, same thing. Uh, We're actually up about a third of a percent over the past five days. Wow. But uh, we're still down almost 3% over the past month and
0: still almost 30% year to date. So 30, 20, and 15. NASDAQ, S&P, and Dow Jones. Hmm. Okay. How about the smaller companies, small cap, the Russell? Yeah, the Russell too. Uh,
1: Over the last five days, we're down 2%. Past month down over
0: five and a half percent and year to date down 25%. 25. So, okay. Well, if we are heading out of a recession, whenever that might be, we'll we'll find out, I guess, when we officially are or are not. Um, Those will tend to be the ones that will come out the strongest, the smaller companies. Why is that? Well, they're smaller. So any impact, whether it be positive or negative, will have a a pretty big um, weighting on their actual returns. So you think of a smaller company, um, if they get an influx of capital or an influx of revenue, it's going to hit our bottom line a, a lot sooner than it will a big company. Um, and the big companies, you know, it's kind of like driving a cruise ship. They're so massive to get a change, to feel mm. any, any kind of an impact. It's got to be a big, big deal. So leading out of recession, those smaller mid-cap companies uh, will kind of lead the way and, and shine uh, some light, I guess, on what we've seen so far. Although, I, I don't know, are we actually in a recession? Are we going to officially um, trend that way? I, I don't know. A lot of people say no, not this year. Well, down 15 20 or 30%. If you're in any of those indexes, you're probably not feeling so great. You're probably say, shaking your head saying, this is not a recession? Then what is it? You know, just a, a small blip on the radar? I mean, to a lot of people, 20% loss. If you've got $100,000, you're down... 20,000, that's a pretty big deal, you know, in six, not even a full six months so far for the year. But anyway, that that wraps up the major indices. Let's jump out into some of the outliers and, and see what things have been developing there. So energy, the poster child for winners this year in 2022, year to date is up about 29 and change. So still positive, although it's pulled back quite a bit. So if we look at this in the last week or so, it's down almost 12%. So it's bucking the trend. It's, it's been heading um, north. And now this past week or so, it took a, a 12% kick to the gut. Despite my optimism, I think long-term on this. And, and I say long-term, I mean the next 12 to 48 months. Uh, commodities. Uh, and things like that, I, I see them being benefactors of rising inflation and higher costs or goods and services, things like that. How about the banking sector? So we talk about rising rates. You think, geez, the financial sector, as rates increase, there's bigger margins, bigger spreads, they can make more money. Here to date, that thing is down over 20%. That's the XLF. That's a financial sector spider fund. Uh, we use that ETF kind of as a proxy for our, our uh, financial sector. I think it's down 20%. Clean balance sheets, they pay dividends, they tend to be more resilient in down markets. Last five trading sessions, been sideways, kind of flat. So I'm still very optimistic on this. And if you're getting in and and having those dividends reinvested, you're buying shares at a 20% discount from where they were back in January. And then before we move on to the digital assets, I know we've... Had one that I had to add, and that was the XLRE. That's a real estate sector. So we haven't really heard much news from that this year. Um, Our weightings have been down a little bit, although we do have positions in this sector. And the XLRE right now, year to date, is down about 21%. So that's real estate again. It's going to pay you some dividends and things like that. Now, in the last five trading days, that thing is up three and a quarter percent. So maybe it's hit bottom and, and this is the time for it to start you know, ramping up and gaining some traction. I hope so. If I look at this thing in the last five years, it's up about 25% and it's been pretty much stalled since that late November, late November, December of last year. How about digital gold? Uh, digital gold. How about real gold? That's the GLD, the gold, Spider Gold Trust. Year to date, that thing is up almost 2%. And if we look at the last week or so, this thing is up about half a percent. So not a lot of movement there. Although, again, precious metals, commodities, things like that, I think will have more value added to their store. If we move on to the digital currencies, we've got the GBTC, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, here to date almost 62% negative. (laughs) In the last week, it's down almost 6%. Over the weekend – I mean, this thing got destroyed. Not just the GBTC, not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum and Litecoin. How about the others? Uh, We move on to the ETH. That's the Grayscale Ethereum Trust. Year-to-date, down a whopping 78%. In the last week, that thing is down 35 We shift gears to Litecoin, the smallest of the three. Year-to-date, down 67%. And in the last five days, a little pop. 12 plus percent positive. Wow. So that's a little different than the others. Why? why, Uh, That's the next question. Why? (laughs) I don't know. Why do they do anything? Why do they trade? I guess it's just who thinks it's going to be worth more money, Uh, me or the person I sell it to? I don't know. Have you gotten into Bitcoin at all or any of the cryptocurrencies? No, not at all. I paid, I think I mentioned this a couple months ago, maybe in February, March. For the first time ever, I paid somebody in crypto. Mm. I had some work done on my rental properties, and this particular plumber wanted to try a transaction by getting paid in Bitcoin, and so we did it. Um, I didn't really notice the difference at all. I mean, I it was actually a little bit more complicated than anything. Uh, getting a QR code and sending the money um, versus traditional banking, I either send a check or do a wire.
1: Well, I'm thinking uh, now, you said this this was a few months ago? Mm-hmm. So now what you paid him is probably valued so much less than it was that you probably got away with.
0: Think about this. You know? So if I paid him 500 bucks worth of Bitcoin, Ethereum, I can't even remember what I transferred. I think I used like uh, they have a, a stable coin, mm-hmm. like a it doesn't really go up or down in value. I think that's what I used to transfer, but I, I can't remember. But yeah, to your point, if that was worth $500, what I paid him in February and it's down even half. That 500 bucks is worth 250 now. Probably not too happy. <laughs> and remember last year we talked about some of the NFL players wanting their contract paid in Bitcoin? Yeah. Ouch. Imagine getting a, a $10 million contract not worth 5
1: Yeah, it was uh, Odell Beckham. It's crazy, man. A huge portion of his contract was all crypto, and it's probably just devastated now.
0: Well, there's so much manipulation. Nobody really knows what's going on. Everybody brags about it. You see celebrities that jump on board. They put, they use their face They make a little ad. They say, buy Dogecoin, buy Bitcoin, whatever it might be. And a lot of them are ending up in court. They're being sued. Market manipulation. um, They're, they're promoting things that they, they, you know, and I think sometimes when people see a celebrity, they just at face value, they think it's worth something. Oh, well, if Kim Kardashian does it, I, it's gotta be worth something, right? So that, that to me is scary where, where you don't see people pumping up stocks. Hey, buy Apple stock today. You know, you don't, you don't see Michael Jordan on TV telling you to buy Apple or Microsoft or whoever. So that's kind of scary. I would avoid that. You know, I guess the bigger question is if you did own crypto and it's down 50, 60, 70, 80% from where you bought it, what do you do now? Do you, do you sell it? Do you think it recovers? Do you go into something else? Yeah, I don't, that's a good question. Flip a coin. And your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't know. To me, I, that's really a bet. And if you had a lot of money there, I, I'm praying for you because I, I, I hope it works out well. But I don't know what will happen. I don't know if we'll see those those levels again. If we'll reach those levels, or if they would be better suited just moving that into stocks, solid stocks that have good earnings that have good potential to move up uh, in the next year or so. With that, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with the show. Do you want help building and managing an investment portfolio that's right for you? One that will help you maximize growth potential while you're saving, help you generate income when you need it most, and eventually preserve what you've saved to leave to your beneficiaries? We do this day in and day out and take the stress and responsibility of making those decisions off your plate. Subscribe to our newsletter, read our blog post, and listen to our podcast to get a flavor of how we do things. Our firm is unique and capable of handling all your investment and insurance needs. Monarch Wealth Management, our guidance, your future.
1: Welcome back to the Pennywise Financial Podcast here at Monarch Wealth Management, along with Constantine. My name is Sam. And in part two, we like to talk about current case studies and things that relate to our customers. And today we've been talking about, you know, some of our clients inheriting money. And I I have a question for you because okay. I don't, Shoot, I don't really fire know away. that much about that either. so generally in a, in a broad question for you is what happens when you inherit money and specifically, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are, uh, how do the taxes work and really just what, what,
0: what goes on there? So there's a lot of different parts to that. Um, it matters who the person is that died. It, it also matters who is inheriting the money. So is it, um, a husband and wife? Is it a child? Is it a sibling? Is it a friend? Is it, you know, is it a colleague? You know, it really depends on that. So why does that actually matter? Well, the, the first part is, if it's a retirement account, the IRS outlined some new rules in the last couple of years. Number one is, if you're married and your husband or your wife inherits a retirement account, 401k, 403b, 457, IRA. They can inherit that as their own. So Mr. Smith passes away, leaves that money to Mrs. Smith. That's in a 401k. He's got 100,000. She would come in and fill out death claim forms telling the company, whether it be Fidelity, Transamerica, TIA Craft, whoever it is, That her husband passed away. That $100,000 then goes to Mrs. Smith in a retirement account of her own, an IRA. So, how much tax do you think she has to pay on that retirement account?
1: Mm, I would guess and say, I don't know, maybe like a quarter.
0: So, by doing the transfer in a retirement account on a spouse, There's actually no taxes due at that point, at that point, but, but you got
1: to pay it later.
0: Correct. Yeah. So when she takes the money out, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Smith decides to take money out. She's over 59 and a half. She needs a new income supplement, right? She's going to pay federal tax and maybe some state tax, depending on the state you live in and guidelines. Decent amount of tax. Yeah. Let's call it maybe 20, Mm. 25% for federal, depending on how much their earned income is for that year. And then the state, uh, you know, if it's the first twenty thousand in New York State, maybe it's tax exempt. I don't know what other income sources they have, but that does play a role. Now that's just looking at retirement accounts, and that's looking at a spouse, husband or wife. Now let's still use retirement account, but let's say Mrs. Smith is uh, predeceases Mr. Smith, so Mr. Smith now has his kids. Johnny and Jesse. Johnny and Jesse are 50/50 beneficiaries. They are uh his sons. So they come in, fill out the death claim form, paperwork. They move money into an IRA in their own name. They're non-spouses. So what do you think happens there? There's different rules. I don't expect you to know. Do you have any idea though? No. What might I happen? Don't know. Okay. So the new rule is if a non-spouse inherits an IRA or some type of qualified retirement plan, they have to liquidate that account within 10 years. Doesn't mean they have to cash it all out in one year or two years. They could take it out evenly over 10 years, pay taxes on it. But the, the fact is by the end of the 10th year from the date of death, that account has to be zero. And that's an IRA, BDA, beneficial death account. It's a non-spousal inheritance of retirement assets. Now, what can they do with that money? Well, if it's in a uh, 401k or traditional IRA, they could take that money out and reinvest it into a non-retirement. Maybe they have other retirement accounts they want to use it for. They could pay down debts. They could put it in their savings account. They could do whatever they want. The IRS and the state don't care because they just want their tax money, right? Now, what happens... If we shift gears, now we just looked at all pre-tax accounts. We looked at spouse and non-spousal beneficiaries. What if we said the account is a Roth IRA? Mr. Smith is $100,000 Roth IRA, right? If it goes to a spouse, we already know what happens, whether it's traditional or Roth. But what if it's a non-spouse? What if uh, Johnny and Jesse inherit that money, the kids, any idea what happens?
1: Do they get to keep that account and it just stays in
0: their name? Sort of. Hmm. They still have the 10-year spend-down rule, okay. except there's a big difference. In this case, even though there's no taxes collected for the federal or state, they have to draw that money out by 10 years. So why is that? What, like, Why
1: did they make that a rule?
0: I'm not sure. There's some rules that exist that I, I scratch my head. I wonder hmm. why. Like, why would they... F- and I think this is the the reason why. If that money was allowed to stay in in Johnny and Jesse's name in a Roth, it would continue growing tax free forever. Mm. And what if they die and they say, okay, my now you know I inherited a hundred thousand, now it's worth half a million. Then I give it to Sammy, my son, and then I say, Sammy, listen, keep this in a Roth and and defer it. And when you die, you leave it to your kids, and we'll just keep growing this thing. All of a sudden, you got $5, 10 $20, 30000000 million in tax-free assets. It just continues in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So I think the IRS says, no, let's slow that down a little bit. You're still allowed to do some things with it, but you just can't let this grow forever tax-free. So they have to take that money out within 10 years. But what they can do with it is take it, and if they qualify based on income, maybe they just sock it into their own Roth IRA. In a sense, they're kind of doing the same thing they're almost going to get to the same place, if you will. But in most cases, I'll tell you, from, from doing this over time, the kids inherit it and they take the money and they spend it. Mm. <laughs> that, that's just the, the way it works. So those are, those are um, kind of in a nutshell. I, I skipped over a lot of different things. I mean, you'll, we, we will not have enough time to go over every single scenario, but that's the bulk of what happens in retirement, both in pre-tax and post-tax for spouse and non-spouse. Now, non-retirement, a little bit different. You get a step up in cost basis. There's some tax incentives there. Johnny and, Jay, and Jane, Janie inherit money from Mr. Smith. It's in a non-retirement account. They're 50-50 beneficiaries. They're going to get a step up in basis. And what that means is a tax incentive. So they may be able to inherit the $100,000 account, sell it the next day, and pay zero tax. So that is different. Now, there's also something... Uh, about an estate tax, depending on the size of all the assets in the estate. You got a farm, you got a business, you got a couple million dollars in life insurance, you got all these different things. Those will count towards that exclusion. And once you uh, reach a, a certain threshold, now you have to worry about estate taxes and state estate taxes. So they bumped up those exclusion amounts pretty high so that most of our clients don't have to worry about that in upstate New York. But you hit 5, 10, 15 million in assets, it adds up quick. You got a farm, you got a business, your business is worth 5 million. You got life insurance for a million, two million bucks. You've got retirement accounts, that stuff adds up. So that in a nutshell is how retirement, non-retirement assets are inherited. And that's the process.
1: IRS needs their uh, tax money, huh?
0: They want their cut, (laughs) right? It's always the case. So Sam, what else did we work on this week with our, with our clients that we talked about? Yeah, so we were talking about at a certain age, uh,
1: you have to take money out. That's what, right. What is
0: that age, 59 and a half? Is a, so or does it depend? There's a couple different numbers that come into play. 59 and a half is definitely a crucial number. Mm-hmm. 59 and a half allows you, gives you the right, gives you access to retirement funds. Okay. Without penalty. Doesn't mean no tax, it just means no Mm -hmm. penalty. And actually, I did a 401k enrollment meeting today and that question came up. 59 and a half does not, uh, it entitles you to take the money out, but you're not forced to. Okay. And uh, there's another number, age 70 and a half. If we go back five, 10 years ago, that number was pretty important because that was a mandate, the IRS said, when Sam, when you reach 70 and a half, you have to start taking what's called an RMD, Required Mandatory Distribution. That was changed. I guess it's been two or maybe three years now. That age is now 72. Hmm. So 70 and a half is no longer important, no longer valid, unless you already started collecting. Um, but 72 is the magic number. So at 72, we still have a lot of folks that say, you know what? I thought I would really need this money. I've got my social security. I maybe have a pension. I've got some rental properties. I've got income. I've got assets. I've got no expenses, no debts. I don't want to take this money out. I want to leave this for my kids, or what if I go into a nursing home, or what if I need assisted living? What I want to keep these assets preserved. I don't want to take this RMD. So they want an out, O U T. They want an out. They 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 want to pass on this. Well, I'll tell you right now, if you decide that you don't want to take the RMD, do you know what the IRS does? Probably penalize you somehow. They're going to impose a penalty, mm-hmm. and it's steep. You think 20% tax and 5% or 10% for state and a 10% penalty is steep. How about 50? 50% is the penalty. So if you have a $100,000 account, just to give you an example, rough ballpark number. If you had to take out an RMD, Sam Gwelly is now 72. Hard to believe. 72 years old Sam Gwelly got $100,000 in your IRA. They say, okay, Sam, you've got to take money out. To give you an idea of what that amount is, it's roughly... 4% 4% the first year. So that's 4000 If you say, cons, I don't want to take this money, they will charge you, the IRS, they, not me, not Monarch, they will charge you a 50% penalty on the amount you were supposed to take out. So if you pass on the 4000 they will charge you 2000 in penalties. So what if you do take the 4000 what's the uh, tax there? So it's going to be based on your income. Mm-hmm. So again, roughly, we we like to look at 20, maybe 25%, depending if you're a high income earner um, for federal tax. And then maybe you have some state tax, depending on the state you live in. Again, maybe the first 20,000 in New York state is income tax exempt on distributions from an IRA retirement account. So that may be uh, something that you don't have to pay. But what else could you do? What if you take the money out and give it to charity, you know, I have a, a good heart. I don't need this money. My kids don't need the money. I want to preserve it just in case, but I'd really like to support a charity. What if I pull out my 4,000 and then write a check to XYZ charity, I won't have to pay taxes, will I? Oh, yes, you will. When you take the money out, you pay tax on the distribution. You're going to get a 1099 from the IRS, or excuse me, from the provider that you will submit to the IRS. And then you may be able to take the charitable contribution as a deduction on your taxes. So that's one option. You are still going to pay tax. Of course. Another option is something called a QCD. That is a, well, do you know what that is? Nope. Not a lot of people do. Uh, Again, that's why the question came up as far as options. Qualified charitable contribution. Mm -hmm. So almost the same thing happens. Mrs. Smith says, I want to give this to a charity. Instead of taking a distribution, paying taxes, getting a 1099, filing that with her return, and then writing a check to the charity, what she would do is just literally take the money from her retirement account, fill out a special form, send the money directly to the charity. She will not pay taxes on that money. Hmm. It's a direct transfer. Now, you don't get the charitable contribution deduction, but in many cases— not paying taxes on your IRA distribution, your RMD, will be a better savings for you than taking the money, paying the taxes, and then writing the check and getting the deduction. So there's there are some things that you can do, you know, on those uh, retirement accounts if that's important as far as preserving the assets and things like that. There's other neat things you can do if if estate planning is your thing and you say, "Geez, I really like to leave a lot of money to my kids. How can I make the most out of this IRA?" I know I've got to pay taxes on it. I know when I die, they have to pay taxes. And now this is extremely important for a lot of, a lot of folks with planning needs. Before, before the IRS changed the rule maybe three years ago, four years ago now, a child could inherit a retirement account and take distributions out over their lifetime, meaning they could allow the account to grow, pay less in taxes, and preserve that money for a long time. Now they cut it down to 10 years. And there's talk, there's more proposals on the table where they may shorten that age, shorten that time frame. Instead of 10 years, maybe five years. The IRS, New York State, a lot of states are hungry for money right now. We're printing assets, we're printing (laughs) dollars out left and right, and we um, are looking for ways to collect. So yeah, as far as inheriting assets, yeah, it can get pretty complicated. You definitely want to have a good accountant. You want to have a good CPA, a good attorney involved in your estate plan looking at ways to eliminate taxes when it comes to inheritance and then distribution and their strategies behind that. I hope that answers your question and didn't bore you to death.
1: No, you made a lot of sense (laughs) to
0: me. With that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with the show. Do you have a high deductible insurance plan? If so, have you set up your HSA? There's a ton of people who don't know what it is or how it works. Even worse, there aren't many people who can give you advice about how to make the most of these powerful and unique programs. Not many advisors focus on this in their practice, don't understand the mechanics of how they work or even where to begin helping their clients. Reach out to me, Constantine at Monarch Wealth Management, and I'll guide you through this process and get you on track to make the most of your high deductible plan and your superhuman HSA. Welcome back to Pennywise Financial Podcast. This is Constantine here at Monarch Wealth Management with my co-host Sam Gwelly. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We've covered a lot of ground here. It's a little bit of dry um, topics, some some inheritance and taxes and, and RMDs and IRAs, retirement stuff, but how about the market condition right now? Is now the time to be buying? What might be happening? And we get, I guess this is on a weekly basis from LPL Research, one of our very good partners, broker-dealer, um, talking about what might end the bull market. And we've asked this question before. So there's there could be a technical recession uh, that's indicated with two quarters of negative GDP, which might be happening, We might be in the middle of right now. But They're saying that the bull market could be ended by the Fed and interest rates. And I think what I'm seeing at least, I'm on a number of um, real estate searches where I get new inventory as well as some old inventory that gets updated. I'm starting to see prices come down a little bit, not a lot. It's not like a 20% decrease. But instead of houses going on sale, let's say on the market for $699 and selling for $750, $800, starting to go the other way. They're listing for six ninety nine, dollars and they're still available 30 days later, now reducing the price to, let's say, 649. Again, I don't know if they'll sell. Part of that is because of interest rates. You know, the, the Fed is one mechanism. They're one piece of the puzzle to, to helping uh, restrain infl- inflation, right in spending and slowing down the economy. But there's another part too. And that may or may not be so noticeable, and it's gas prices. I just had a uh, a survey uh, posted out the company did on the website about where gas prices might be. I don't know if you saw it, Sam, but I asked the question, and I got a little bit of votes coming in. I'm glad to see, or I'm happy to see, interested to see what they might come in at. So prices right now for gas around five bucks a gallon is the average. I think five dollars and one cent um, across the board for regular unleaded. Where do you see the gas prices being? So I gave a few options. 5. Uh, 550. So a little higher than we are now. $6, $7, or $4. And
1: by the end of the year. End of the year.
0: <clears throat> well, I'm hoping for $4. I'm hoping too. But, I haven't gotten any votes at $4 yet. But I mean,
1: I it it keeps going up, right? So I can I can see it up to you know, 6.
0: So far, some of the smarter, brighter, intelligent people on Wall Street and analysts on TV are saying that, yeah, six dollars is kind of around the corner, which it is. I mean, I pay five fifty, I think, for premium. I have not filled up in a couple months now in a month, I guess, at the marina, but I'm sure I'm I'm probably approaching six dollars if not already there right now, a gallon. Um so yeah, and I mean there's a lot of runway before the end of the year. But anyway, the reason I bring up gas prices is that's another mechanism that I think it curtails spending. Right. If you're paying five, six, seven, eight bucks a gallon for gas, you're you're probably gonna think twice about heading out to Brockport or, or Avon or heading out in the west side or even far out of east, southeast Syracuse, taking a day trip. Uh, I know the Renaissance Festival is is coming up in, in a few weeks. Have you ever been? Yeah, I used to go a lot when I was younger. Never been, always wanted to go. But, but <laughs> you know, that's about an hour away. If mm-hmm. people are paying a substantial amount of money and we have an SUV in our family and we have uh, my car, which is a sedan, which gets about 22 to 25 miles a gallon, makes you think twice. All right, now it's a day trip. It's your time, but it's also money, you know, and, and putting that into the pump. And I feel like it, it doesn't last as long. So I was talking to some farmers about this and they said that the increase in ethanol in the gas reduces the mileage per gallon. Hmm. I, I kind of feel like it's true, but I don't, I, it may also be that I'm more sensitive to watching how often I fill up. And I'm also perturbed when I have to pay. Like I see the price, I'm like, oh man, here we go again. So I don't know. I, I That's the way I feel. I feel like I've I've lost maybe a um, couple miles per gallon. I think I'm averaging now around 20 to 21, which is lower. I don't know if you've noticed that. I
1: haven't noticed that, but I mean, maybe I'll look for Pay it. Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, don't know. I, I it can, might just
0: be me. I can relate to your disgust when filling up. It's horrible. It's horrible. But that's... You know, so that's another piece, I think, that's kind of built into the economy as far as helping people make decisions on how to reduce spending. And all that will will play into keeping slowing down the economy, which is part of the Fed's job, is, is a balancing act. Are we spending enough? Try to encourage that by reducing rates. Or are we spending too much, raising rates, slowing things down, and then letting the economy digest? So those are some things to talk about. Now,
1: well, <clears throat> what I was going to say is uh, there's definitely some long-term optimism or at least reason for it. Uh, you mentioned the the LPL newsletter or whatever. And with that came this chart, right? And it was talking about dating back to 1960s, how the market looks, you know, after some pretty bad numbers like we have now. And really how it bad. looks a Ugly few numbers. months down the line, several months down the line, a year down the line. And if you
0: want to just go over that a little bit. I think it's important. I mean, here we are. Like you said, this chart goes back to 1950. And the first occurrence, you're right, is 62. Mm -hmm. So the first quarter since 1950, we're looking at the S&P 500. So top 500 companies, right, in the U.S. A pretty good indication of of how the market is and how the economy is doing. So the first time we see this first quarter, quarter drop. So that's three months worth at 15% or more loss, 1962. And the market at that time was down 21%. Three months later, it was up 2.8. Six months later, it was up 15%. And a year later, it was up almost 27%. So we, uh, we, not me, but LPL provided this data, uh, which I think is quite useful. And they used uh, facts that this is going as of the 21st. So what's today, the 21st? 22nd. 22nd, okay, so as of yesterday. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times in history dating back to 1950 where we have a quarterly return of 15% loss or more. And 85% of the time, almost 86% of the time, just three months later, the market, the S&P 500, was up an average of 7%. 7% higher from where we are now. In three months, it'd be great. In three months, that would be fantastic. Uh, we'd still be negative, but it would be, it would be better. Hmm. And then how about six months? So this would put us closer to the end of the year. 100%. So let me say that again. 100% of the time, six months after, any given quarter dating back to 1950, where we had 15% or more loss, 100% of the time, the market six months later was up an average of 17%. Wow. So think about that. S&P is down about 20. If we make up some ground at 17%, we're still negative, maybe 3 to 5%, give or take, depending on the day. That would be fantastic. Yeah,
1: all in all, that wouldn't be an awful year considering no. how it started.
0: Now, again, we're looking at 2022 and- this past quarter, we're down almost 17%. So that is one of the eight periods in history since 1950, where we're looking at um, numbers, three months, six months, and one year out. Now, if I go one year out, again, 100% of the time, every single period, except of course, this one we don't know yet, the market has been positive. And positive, I think a pretty remarkable amount, almost 30% on average it's huge now there is one time in history one time that 3 months after that bad quarter it was negative and that was in 2008 makes sense so 2008 i don't think we're in a 2008 kind of environment the housing market is is in a different place banking and finance is is definitely in a very different place mm-hmm. financially the banks have very very clean balance sheets Um, They've already kind of adjusted their their employees and staffing. Rates are going up, which means more profit for them. Cleaner balance sheets, um, more strict lending for pretty much every bank across the board. Being down 20%, I think, is a really, really remarkable time to be buying in. And we have access to that. We have our clients invested there. Those dividends are repurchasing additional shares. So I think I like the tone of that that chart. I mean, that's pretty positive, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, as I said, that's definitely reason for optimism uh, over the long term.
0: I think so too. Now, of course, there's no guarantees. I mean, we we know this is historical numbers back to 1950 and history has a a way of repeating itself, but it's not always the same. Might look and act and smell a lot like, but the title of this chart too, I think, you know, is a good one. Horrible quarters could have bulls smiling, could have bulls smiling. And right now we're in a pretty bearish market, but I like the optimism of that. And I think we continue the course. Uh, We definitely don't try to time the market, but this is a really good entry point, I think, for a lot of clients. Those dividend repurchasing additional shares, dollar cost averaging, you're doing that in your 401ks. And I think that the market cycles are even shorter. So I think the the amount of recovery is going to shorten over time. We may see cycles instead of every 10 years we have a market pullback, might be every five to seven. But instead of a year or two to recover, it might only be six months. So again, it's time in the market, not timing the market. I like the optimism here heading into the tail end of the year, the last six months, and hopefully we fare a lot better. With that, I think that's all the time we have today. Thanks again for listening. This is Constantine here with my co-host Sam Guelli at Pennywise Financial Podcast. Thanks again for listening, everyone.
1: You've been listening to Pennywise Financial, brought to you by Monarch Wealth Management. Constantine and David really care about their clients. They want to make sure you're happy, so you'll continue to hire them. There's no commitments, and clients are free to leave whenever they want. Think about being able to pick up the phone and call someone for guidance and advice on almost anything from buying a car, selling a home, buying vacation properties, or even selling a business. Reach out on the website at monarchwealthmanagement.com. There are two offices in Rochester and two offices in Buffalo. Reach out to us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Or call us toll-free at 800-480-1580. That's 800-480-1580. Until next time, this is Pennywise Financial signing off.